Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. I think at some point it would be uh, really helpful maybe to have Jeff McDonald on uh, maybe next week or sometime the week after that. Next week might not be good because General Conference is convening and uh, I just got an email today that about the new denomination that is forming. You know this, I mean we can jump into this too if you want to but I don't know if that's still sort of secretive but that, that breaks my heart, you know, I mean, this kind of um, isolationism and separatism that seems to be happening on every level right now. Yeah, I, I, I really think that this is a thing that we uh, should lift up in this podcast, that we have culturally gotten to a place where in so many important spheres, uh, we're losing the ability to be in community with people who disagree with us. And yeah, um, yeah. that seems to be a condition that is getting worse and not better. Uh, right. That the, the, the feeling is if we disagree, you know, this idea about cancel culture, if we disagree, we can just sort of cancel it, swipe left, you know, just get rid of it, you know, put it out of our view. And I, I just thought of one of my very favorite quotes, both that is sort of echoed in one of my favorite books um, by Jonathan Saffron Four called Here I Am, but also echoed by James Baldwin and even by Teilhard de Chardin, that love is a kind of struggle, right? Love is struggle. Mm-hmm. And to struggle with love means to understand all of its facets, all of the ways that it can show up. Well, here's, here's something that I have been thinking about, about our time. Um, you know, we're talking about Buddha and Jesus. And so um, at the beginning of Buddha's ministry, he went according to the story and sat under the Bodha tree and was assailed by Mara for days and days before he reached enlightenment, but he would not give up. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he went into the desert, the wilderness, for 40 days, and he was assailed by Satan. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this is a parable that the early church made up out of the teachings of Jesus and the experience with him. I can't imagine that the historic Jesus would have come out of any kind of experience and said, hey guys, I just spent 40 days with the devil and beat the snot out of him. I don't think that happened. But I do think that that um, the, the early church shaped a story about him. And, you know, the story that they shaped was to make Jesus the new Moses. And uh, so the children of Israel are led by Moses into the wilderness. And they they are in the wilderness for a long time. And um, 
this pandemic is our wilderness. Yeah, um, um, one among many, right? This it's yeah. It's... We're in we're in the wilderness, and um, in in Buddhist experience, but I'm going to speak primarily now of the Judeo-Christian story. Um, Jesus was patterned. The, the story of Jesus is crafted to be the new Moses. Mm -hmm. So after a period of time, Moses gets to Sinai and uh they all along the way they have their the children of israel have their beefs with with moses they're irritated they want him to be out of slavery but as soon as they're out they start complaining you know why did you bring us out here we had it better when we were slaves um and they complain against moses and for the first two or three times Moses just passes it off and says, it ain't my doing. This is God's doing. You got to, and Moses goes to God and says, what have you gotten me into? Because they, they, they are hungry. They are pro provided in one instance with manna. Well, first with, with uh, quail uh, and then with manna, they are thirsty. They're provided with living water out of a rock. It's like getting blood out of a turnip. And uh, that's, kind of where we are right now economically as a country is that people are complaining about not having resources to manage what what they're doing mm -hmm. um, anyway i've just been reflecting on this um today a lot about how we are in a similar experience and I think our spiritual task, like Buddha, like Jesus, like Moses, is to somehow have a struggle with the sacred so that we can come out of this with a new understanding of who we are and how we are to live. Right. Uh, so Buddha came out of it with, among other things, the Eightfold Path, which we've been talking about. Jesus came out of it with what we're going to be talking about later, the Beatitudes and what I call the Transforming Initiative. And Moses came out of it with the Ten Commandments and then a lot more laws, more than we can count right. uh, <laughs> out of that. But that's a whole other story. The Ten Commandments were not so much about... Um, Jewish identity as they were about how can we live together well and and so here we are in this moment historically where we have we have to figure out a way to listen to what this pandemic is trying to teach us about racial justice about economic justice about healthcare justice uh we can't go back to Egypt. And that's what people, I, that's what I hear people saying when they say, we want to open up the economy and go back. That's like, let's go back to Egypt. And um, that's, that's killing us. Yeah. An underlying question that you sort of alluded to has been on my mind, which is the question of how shall we love, right? We, we have this abstract notion of love which Cornell West said, justice is what love looks like in public, right? And then we have this abstract notion of justice. So these two notions, which we think mean good, but if you asked 100 different people, there might be 99 different definitions, right? Maybe 199 different definitions. 
and we have societies formed on justice mm-hmm. um, that aren't necessarily undergirded by love and certainly aren't undergirded by interbeing, by Thich Nhat Hanh's concept of interbeing. And I, I am grappling with if what we say is we need to embody love, the love that God promised Moses's people coming out of slavery, the love that Jesus promised through uh, bringing the kingdom to earth, the love that Cornel West talks about through justice. How do we do it? You know, I think, I think that is really where we can see this immense groping in human life right now. How do we do that well? And I'm not suggesting that you provide <laughs> the answer unless you have one, in which case I welcome it. But, um, but that's, my, that's my wondering, you know, how shall we love? Well, I, th- I, I don't mean to be arrogant, but I think I do have an answer. I mean, I think that you can, it's all, it, it has already been written down. Yeah. It's in the sacred tradition of every living religion. And that is that when, think about it now, and, uh, you know, Buddha did not live in an economically ideal world. I mean, there was chaos going on all around uh, him in the fifth century BC. Uh, There was chaos going on in Egypt where Pharaoh had a kind of top-down rule and you had the illusion of security as long as you did what the top said. Same thing was true in the time of Jesus. The Roman Empire governed everything, and it was all kind of top down. Uh, Realistically, in American culture right now, Mm -hmm. the top has got to listen to the cries of those who are on the bottom if we're going to make it. And uh, that means that we cannot go back to the way things were. There has to be a, a totally new way of, of delivering on the promises about justice and, and equality and inclusion and all those kinds of things. And I think it's scaring the, the vajayers out of people who are at the top. Um, I have some anxiety about it myself. I mean, you know how things how things are going to be. We're, we're, um, we're in a, you know, I read a quote this morning that I, I got to go find the source of. It says, uh, if you are in pitch blackness, all you can do is sit tight until your eyes adjust to the dark. Mm. Mm. And so we are in this really dark time. Uh, and it seems that it's going to not get any better for a while. And so we need to learn to see. And the top has got to respond to the cries of people at the bottom. Mm-hmm. That's I the answer. Agreed completely that the, you know, the, there's somewhere the two shall meet. Um, and, you know, to be transparent, you and I, uh, as white heteronormative uh, upper middle class, are are by that aligned with the top right so that disruption also has to sort of come from within right Mm -hmm. how how do i disrupt my own comfort my own leanings Mm -hmm. my own what has supported and propped my life up and be willing to 
democratize that, right, in the small D way. Um, yeah, let, let, let me see if I can say back to you what I yeah. just heard you say in another language. I mean, it'll <laughs> still be in English. But, uh, the first step toward constructive change for a person or for society is accepting the reality that we are in and including ourselves in that reality. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a mistake that so much of culture makes is that we want to make changes that don't include us. Or that reality is out there and we're just watchers yeah. of it. We're just right. observers of it. But the fact is, is yeah. that we came up out of this reality. You, what you were saying also made me think about, and I can't help but I, I, my brain seems to work in these like micro, what is my role? What do I need to notice? What is the mirror I need to put focus to macro? How does this sort of fit in onto the cosmological level? The universe began in darkness, right? There, there was a period of darkness before the bright light of the Big Bang, before the photon era where it was just light waves. That light then broke apart and that light got dissipated all over the cosmos and it became galaxies and it became stars and it became planetary systems. So there is, and, and we're still in that, right? This differentiation, expansion mode. The universe is, is expanding. The universe is differentiating. On a social level, I'm trying to see whether or not differentiation, because we are definitely in a kind of differentiation, specification, let me identify myself in this big role uh, mode right now. But are we also able, as the universe does, to expand? So it, socially and morally, can we, meaning human beings, a human species, differentiate while at the same time expand? So it's so amazing that we are having this conversation because just last night, by divine entanglement, I happened to watch the first episode of the first season of Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And it is about this very thing. Cool. Now from the, you know, the explosion at the end of a pencil point to what we have now. Right. And you've seen that show, I'm sure. I haven't actually. I've seen him in person and have, uh, you know, gotten to listen to him talk, which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, well, okay. You have, um, I, I know you do because I've talked to Josh about it. You've got Disney Plus. So on Disney Plus, you have access yeah. to see all these shows uh and and um so cosmos is one of the things that you can see and i watched the first episode last night and it's just amazing he takes an imaginary space ship trip mm -hmm. to the edge of all we know which of yeah. course you can't can't get to uh because it's still expanding and unknowable and all that sort of stuff but it's amazing how many points of light and stars and everything there are out there it's just incredible i i, I want to go back before we leave it to this thing about the wilderness uh because it's i started in my own um 
just spiritual practice this morning, reflecting on what what's going on and and what are the parallels in our tradition that we can draw on to um, maybe talk about Sunday. It may not fit fit for Sunday, but I was thinking about words that mark us right now as a people. Mm. We are very, very, very vulnerable. Um, I feel vulnerable, you know, at my age and having had open heart surgery 11 years ago, I feel like when it comes to the virus, I've got a target on my back. I try to be really, really careful. Mm. And now I'm hearing of more and more people in my circle of influence who have the virus. Um, mm. I attended the staff meeting this morning on Zoom at uh, of, of St. Paul's and like five or six more people have come down with the virus in our in our community. Um, I think that we are mm. both distracted and dislocated. Thanks to Tim Leatherwood, I happened to watch a recording, a DVD of a, a entire St. Paul's worship service a couple of weeks ago and um, God, I miss it. I, I, I mean, I miss the people. I miss hugging. I miss touching. I miss the banter. I, and I feel like, you know, we, um, we've been tossed out of the boat. Mm. Even our boat is not just in a bad storm. We've been tossed out of the boat. And um, it's wrecked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that causes people to be angry. I think it causes people to be frightened yeah. about what we're going to do. Um, we're, we're having to be really, really innovative. And, and I don't want to stop there. I think as a spiritual teacher, my job is to listen to the voice of the sacred in this time. And what are we hearing? And how can we take what we're hearing and put it in some usable, practical form that benefits the whole community? Right. And we ain't there yet. No, again, we're in, we're in the, the struggle, right? I, I, one of my favorite images, biblical images, and I'm not the biblical scholar that you are, is Jacob wrestling the angel, right? And this, what? Jacob wrestling the angel. Yeah. Yeah. And in the wrestling, you know, he's grabbing, literally grabbing the heel and trying to take this angel down. And I kind of feel like that's where we are. We're grabbing this heel and we've just barely got a grip on what may be coming out of this. And we can't yet imagine what we can't yet know. And so we're in the process of imagining, in the process of knowing as we're moving along, right? That's what that uh, playing ball on running water, right? right. Is kind of like, got to keep this thing moving. And we're so, just learning the rules as we go, kind of. So in, in that story, uh, and that whole Jacob, uh, Abraham Isaac Jacob saga mm -hmm. is one of um, it's a story of telling uh, Israel's which is the name that Jacob got right after this he got a new name and he got a limp yep <laughs> he got a limp he came out of that struggle yes. walking differently right he got up to the edge of the Jabbok and he needed to cross, yeah. but he had the struggle that night with this mysterious force. Mm -hmm. He got a new identity. 
And again, I think that's a metaphor. We have come to the edge of something. We need to move across. And we're in this struggle right now mm -hmm. to get a new identity and maybe yeah. a new name. So, yeah, two, I love that um, two words that you, know, you said dislocate, right? Which is the movement of a limb or an organ, right? From mm -hmm. its normal place. So we're dislocated. We need to remember yeah. that organ or limb, right? To the body and not forget. So remembering is also the process of not forgetting mm -hmm. as Jacob did. The limp is a reminder, right? The mm -hmm. limp. So, you know, we think about, um, oh, poor guy, he had a limp, he couldn't do this. But I think the limp keeps us, the metaphor is that it keeps us mindful of the struggle so that we know to keep moving. What I just said can be interpreted dangerously. Keeping on moving may sometimes sound like look for ways to distract yourself. Um, and that's not what I mean. Mm -hmm. What I mean is even in sitting still, we must also ask ourselves, how do my eyes need to be opened? How, how do I need to see this so that I can continue to sort of expand my vision, expand my consciousness as I am also trying to relocate myself and remember? So uh, back to the wilderness story of the children of Israel, they leave Egypt, they start complaining, they are provided for, they continue to complain because they don't have enough, they keep being provided for, and finally they get to a place where they really kind of have an emotional breakdown as a culture, while Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law they turn and start worshiping other gods because it satisfies them in some way. And of course, Moses, played by Charlton Heston, <laughs> comes down to Mount and he's so angry that he breaks the Ten Commandments, whatever they were. We don't know what those were. Josh thinks we have one of the rocks from the original Ten Commandments in front of our house. We have this giant rock that serves as almost like a step and he calls it the Ten Commandment tablet. Well, go read it and tell us what it says. <laughs> it's in hieroglyphs. I'll have but to it, work it, on anyway, that. Anyway, <laughs> I want to read to you something. I read yes, you please. something. I brought this to this podcast meeting to read. Because this is what I thought of this morning as I was reflecting on our wilderness thing and I saw the parallels over and over and over in Buddha and Jesus and Moses and where we are and likening the pandemic that we're in to the wilderness in all three of those narratives, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a guy named William Williams mm -hmm. in 1745 wrote a poem about the, about the children of Israel wilderness wanderings. And I think maybe it could give us some advice. Mm -hmm. The, the, it's put in a hymn that we sing sometimes. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, that's a reference to manna. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. 
feed me till I want no more. The children of Israel, they were so grateful to get the manna, but soon they began calling it this worthless food. They wanted the leeks and onions and garlic of Egypt and not this worthless food. All three stanzas of this great hymn are about reliance on the sacred. We don't use that language anymore, uh, except to sing. But um, you and I say that we are not alone in this time of barrenness and fear and anger and dislocation. And can we find the resources to trust that, as I said in class on Sunday, um, I, I have to trust in my capacity to be enlightened. I have to trust in the capacity of my fellow pilgrims to uh, provide insights and resources that I don't have. Um, and I, I have to trust the, the guidance that comes from the historic figures like Buddha and Jesus, but as well as people uh, like Jim Wallace and others who are speaking to us in this current time about how important it is to achieve this justice that we're we're talking about if we go back to things as they were we're done for the idea that the wilderness is a scary place is so common right when we equate wilderness we equate wild we equate um, fear darkness as you said our eyes need to adjust to that darkness Um, but in the wilderness there's also intense creativity incredible life in all variety of life, right? For, mm-hmm. I don't know how this is equating exactly to what I'm going to say next, but I was thinking about that prayer. I think you first told me this prayer that um, when Thich Nhat Hanh would say a prayer before eating, probably it's older than Thich Nhat Hanh, probably it's just in, in, in any wisdom religion of, I have this bowl of mana or grain in the whole universe is supporting my existence. So in the wilderness is the whole universe supporting our existence. And the mana is the whole universe supporting our existence. Mm-hmm. And that mindset, somehow we just don't seem to cling to that mindset of everything being and everything and supporting our existence at any given moment. It takes practice. Does it take a daily spiritual practice? Uh How about this? I'm (laughs) going to say this on Sunday when we talk about mindfulness. When you brought up Thich Nhat Hanh, it reminds me that in Plum Village in France, um, I think every hour Mm -hmm. they ring a bell and people stop whatever they are doing for three minutes. Mm -hmm. Now we have all these devices that we carry with us now, our, our phones, our watches uh, that have reminders on them. And you can set one to remind you every hour just to stop. You, you know, I had, I had this experience in um, Spain last year, the year before last when we were on this pilgrimage. It's a wonderful experience for me. Um, I use a, 
a background on my Zoom, which you're looking at right now, of the um, mm -hmm. monastery, the Benedictine monastery of Silos in, uh, in Spain. Um, and we went to the Abbey there for a Sunday afternoon um, prayer service. Yeah. We had no idea what we were in for. Uh, the monastery is very active. They've uh, got seven, about 70 monks there and they both are involved in <clears throat> working the land, uh, growing things, and they have a chocolate factory, and it, it was an amazing thing. And and unlike other experiences that mm -hmm. I've had in France and Spain, going to monasteries and uh, abbeys, this one was a, a young population. I would say the monks were in their, some of them were in their late 30s and up, um, but there were about 50 monks who came in to sing evening prayer, chant evening prayer. And um, people from all around the countryside came to that service. So it was very well attended. And um, Sherry and I got there early to walk around the Abbey and to look at the artwork. It's not an ancient building. The, 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 uh, the cloister is ancient and the monastery itself was begun to be built in the seventh century. They still have done archeological work for it. So the monks come in and they sit and we did without anybody announcing it, we did a 30 minute mm. silent sit before the service started. It was amazing. And of course, I just sat there amused with the workings of my own monkey mind because <laughs> I was projecting and transferring and having to catch myself and bring it back over and over but it was a wonderful experience of mindfulness and especially to see these monks sit there and not move your beloved Jim Finley would say that's how many times you got to return yeah. I once was in a writing workshop um, with Cameron Deason Hammond. She's a brilliant writer and a great teacher. And it, she was sort of teaching about this idea of like a spiritual memoir. And she, she started it by doing a guided meditation, kind of emptying our mind. And she, for, first of all, confessed, I don't really, I'm just really not a good meditator, but I really like this one <laughs> that it, the, the, the first layer is kind of saying, um, paying attention to the chatter, paying attention to the monkey mind, saying hello to it and just, you know, sitting with it for a minute and then saying, all right, monkey mind, you've kept me alive for all these years. You've done your job. You've served your purpose. Now shut the F up and let me get down <laughs> to, the, to the layer beneath it. Yeah. So, you know, and, but just that need sometimes to attend to the monkey mind, which reminds us also to silence it, which also reminds us that there's another sigh beneath the monkey mind. There's another layer of the wilderness or another layer of the rich soil. That So Jim Finley tells a story. <clears throat> he says, imagine that you uh, have decided to take up a meditation practice and uh, you don't know how to do it, but you have found this meditation teacher who promises that um, he will sit with you in the group that you're part of. And your, your task is to count your breath 
from one to 10 with no interrupted thought. And so you go, do it every morning. Uh, you can go before work. So from seven to eight every morning you go and you join the others and you sit and you try this practice of counting from one to 10 with a no interrupted thought and you can't get to two. Mm -hmm. You can't get to yeah. two and you're so discouraged mm -hmm. and you go to the teacher and you say, I can't do it. And the teacher says, don't worry about it. <clears throat> we have the rest of your life to practice. We're going to meet here every morning from seven to eight, and we're going to sit and we're going to do this until you can do it. And so you really agree that that's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And about year eight, you're sitting there one day and you realize that you have gotten to three. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like 50. <laughs> You have gotten to three and you're yeah. so excited, of course, that you have an interrupted thought about that. Yeah. And Finley says you, that when you do that, you realize, oh my God, I'm not going to make it. And Finley says, you were never going to make mm. it. The point is not making it. The point is doing it. The point is sitting and trying to gain some awareness of the activity of your mind. Mm -hmm. And how difficult it is, how the mind has a mind of its own. Mind does. And, and, um, but it's in that time, in that practice time, that I honest to God believe that we can become less reactive. Yes. And we can make, we can, we can practice how we want to respond to the situations in our life. Yeah. And there's the hope. This, as you know, I, I really enjoy Tara Brock, and she has a, podcast in which she does dharma teachings but she also leads meditations as part of her podcast so she may have an hour-long dharma talk and then followed by a 15 20 sometimes 45 minute meditation and she in, sort of references that crazy eight idea of disrupting our thinking that part of the practice is that if we can just get off our normal pathway just for even one second. We're, we're rewiring something in our brain. And in, so to, to use the, mm -hmm. the wood analogy again, the woods are easier to get through because sometimes because there are pathways in the wood, pathways that people before us have created, that animals have created, et cetera. And any time that we're disrupting business as usual, we're like getting off the worn path a little bit. Mm -hmm. We're just, we're in, and Tara Brock says that even if that, even if it's just for that second, that you will have done your tiny footprint in another direction. So I coined a phrase. I don't think I got this from anybody else, but I came up with it years ago that we have these habits of the mind that causes trouble. Mm -hmm. They're bad habits. They're like smoking or doing something that, bad for your body it's and and actually um i got this from buddhist teaching because buddha long before he knew anything about what we know today about neuroscience mm -hmm. said that what happens to people is that 
they form these what we would now call neuropathways by having a, 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 a unwise and unuseful thought over and over and over and over and it like cuts a groove in your brain mm -hmm. That's right. so that it's just easy to go down that path and meditation is about cutting new neural pathways that's that's what that's about right yeah you remember that when you were first studying psychology learning about this idea of the homunculus no the little the little man inside the man <laughs> that that so the homunculus was uh is that was thought to have been in like a fully formed individual that existed within the germ cell right like in, existed within the cell or within the uh, mm -hmm. the fetus that that operated the the body or operated the brain and and that's essentially what monkey mind is right is our little homunculus inviting and 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 i think diligence right diligence if you will that then leads into right mindfulness is as as you have said so many times as the wisdom teachers people like jim finley richard war tiknot han tar brock says it's not about denying the existence of the homunculus mm -hmm. it's about you know just saying hello mm -hmm. <laughs> and going is this a path i should go, go down or not is this using discernment to to know which which path um we follow and so the most important part of our practice and as practice bleeds into life and life becomes our practice is the ability to pause the ability to just say Hmm. Is this the way? <laughs> Thomas Keating died last year, and Thomas Keating was um, a man who lived in Snowmass, and he uh, he took Buddhist meditation practice and adapted it to Christian theology and called it centering prayer. Mm -hmm. And I heard Thomas Keating give a talk once in which he said that when you sit to meditate, uh, you need to make sure that you close out the world for a time. And he, he quoted a phrase that I'm sure most people have heard about Jesus saying, when you pray, go into your closet and close the door. And what Thomas Keating said was that, you know, houses didn't have closets back then <laughs> so that's that a, a mistranslation of a concept that jesus taught about using the prayer shawl that jewish men had called the talent mm -hmm. and you would put it over your head and close it and that's the way to pray it's always the muslims pray when they bow to the floor even though they're, even though they're very close together, they're you know, right in their own little closet. Yeah, in their own hmm. closet. Hmm. It's that you know. It's interesting because it's also you know we to close our mind to the world, but to open it to the fact that every other thing is supporting our existence. Right, that the universe is supporting our existence. I love. Um, you reminded me of as i was rereading this chapter in the the heart of the buddha's teachings that part of the right mindfulness is making every other thing the sky the flower the bee the butterfly 
um, present. So breathing in all that is, breathing out ego, distraction, mm -hmm. um, the monkey, homunculus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, again, I mean, yeah, just I, I think that prayer is so simple and so beneficial is in this bowl, the whole universe is supporting my existence. In this breath, the whole universe mm -hmm. is supporting my existence. One time I was telling my kids about that we were that we were getting ready to have dinner and you know it's something like chicken nuggets and french fries with fruit or something like that and i take the chicken nugget and i you know we said do you know where this comes from yeah mommy the box at the store well who put it in the box in the store uh i don't know the man at the store <laughs> you know so but essentially like we did this creative where we, where we went as far as they could and they got to um, you know, the driver who drives the truck, who, who delivers it to the store, the farmer who raised the chickens, who killed the chickens so that the man who drives the truck could pick it up and put it to the store. So it was, you know, that song, there was an yeah. old lady who swallowed a fly. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of the trace we took. And it was this beautiful, playful, fun yeah. way of doing a gratitude prayer before they ate their chicken nuggets, you know. <laughs> Years ago, I got invited to become an adjunct faculty member of the Baylor College of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And I taught in a program called the Living Hearts Program. I taught meditation. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I was hired to do. They, um, the person who hired me was a little bit concerned that maybe the word meditation would not fly by the medical community. So they said that I was teaching stress reduction. <laughs> but that's yeah. okay because I taught uh, I taught a class there, and in, in order to be in the class that I taught, you had to have had a heart attack, a heart procedure, a uh, transplant, or be awaiting a transplant. And so, um, one of the things that I did in that group is that I taught. It's, it's called, it was all about mindful meditation. But one of the things I did, and I got this idea from J John Kabat-Zinn, um, who started a program similar to this in uh, Boston. And honestly, we do not need to do any more research on this. We, uh, we have this down. Um, meditation is physically good for you. It will save your life. At any rate, one of the exercises mm -hmm. that I did, and we, we had a group, say, of 30 heart patients, and I would give everybody a raisin, mm -hmm. a raisin, and ask them to study the raisin, to get to know their raisin. Mm -hmm. And then I would collect all the raisins, and then I would pass them out again and ask people to pick their raisin. Nobody can pick their raisin. Oh, yeah, they could. Oh, they could? They could. Okay. They could get to know their raisin enough that they could, uh, you know, it was some give and take. About sure, sure. So um, we talked about the very thing about mindful eating. Because usually when we eat, we have a shovel full of food coming to our mouth and we've not even finished the one that's in that's our mouth. That's right. So yeah. we're developing about mindfulness.
they did test on the patients that I worked with, blood test, blood pressure test, and something else, both before and after the meditation session. Blood pressure was down. The damaging hormones in blood went down. Mm. It's healthy if you meditate. Yeah. You'll live longer. Do you know Dr. Andrew Vale? He, um, he's one of the sort of minds behind the restaurant uh, uh, True Food Kitchen. There's one over on San Felipe by the Galleria. Mm -hmm. And he, he's a cardiologist. And he's developed, you know, this um, uh, menu, this this way of eating that is that is anti-inflammatory, that is uh, good for our bodies, and it still includes like fun cocktails, <laughs> but it, all of it is anti-inflammatory. And he also is a proponent of what's called four, seven, eight breathing. Do you do you know this type of breathing where you breathe in for four seconds, you hold it for seven seconds? And you breathe out slowly for eight seconds. And the real push is to, to breathe out for twice as long as you breathe in. And he is like, you do that four times a day, it will save your life. <laughs> and he, you know, as a cardiologist also, he found a lot of what you're saying in your study that people's everything improved by breath. I think it is, you know, four, seven, eight, it's like you say, you can't call it meditation, but you can call it stress reduction you you can call you can't call right. it um uh mindful breathing but you can name it something like four seven eight breathing right who cares what it is is the pause yeah. builds awareness builds longevity and attention nuts so i i shared with you that a week ago today yeah. one of my best yeah. friends died and um dr donald williamson who just one of the great minds, I think, of our time. And Don had no patience for any superficial talk or anything. He was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes when he was 13 and told that he would probably not live past his early 30s. He was 87 when he died. And he kept himself alive by the very things that we're talking about right now. He was the one that introduced, introduced me to Vipassana meditation. Right. Actually, he introduced Sherry to Vipassana meditation. And when he talked about it, I said, there is no way in hell I will ever do that. So Sherry and, turns to you and says, you really need this, Bill. <laughs> you know, uh, Sherry's response was, I'm going the next Yeah. I get. And two weeks later, she was gone. So. I saw what it did for her and I said, okay, I'll do it. I need to do that. I never have. And it is um, on the bucket list, I think. So, and, and actually right now, uh, given that we are still operating in a pandemic and our family is choosing to be pretty, pretty steadfast about being in one location as much as possible, except for the necessities. A 10 day silent meditation sounds awesome. <laughs> After being in my house with seven people for however many months. <laughs> well, it's very difficult to do. I'll yeah, tell you I that. don't doubt it. And, I don't doubt uh, it. It's also very worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep playing with the wilderness metaphor for a yeah. while. I don't know if it will work in with what we're talking about on Sunday about um, 
right mindfulness but we'll, we'll see yeah it just you know it seems that right mindfulness is kind of a culminating aspect of of buddhism in that with right mindfulness we liberate ourselves from suffering yeah i i, I do know that in this time we're being given an opportunity to listen and um we can't let the we can't go back to the top-down kind of rule that we've had yeah. and how we find another way that truly is more inclusive is our task it's our opportunity to do that to bring it to the point back to the cosmos the differentiation breeds communion so there's unity and diversity yeah i i really would encourage anybody to go watch the first the first show in the first season of Cosmos, yeah. the the graphic, the artwork is just beautiful. Just, mm. they got all these mm. photographs from the Hubble telescope that they've worked in. It's just, it's amazing. It's just breathtaking. Like that. Uh, yeah. And we're the byproduct of that. We are stardust. Yeah. That's what, that's what uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said. We're made of this stuff. Yeah. This is uh, your birthplace. <laughs> Okay. All righty. <laughs> See you on Sunday. Thanks for this time. Thank you.